When I joined Duarte in 2011, Nancy had just published Resonate and her TED Talk had just gone live. And that was um, hitting a, a lot of people in like the, the happy place. They were getting really excited about this new way of applying storytelling principles to business communication. And so she asked me to start up a team of writers to get ready for all this inbound interest in speech writing and storytelling. I am definitely a deconstructing life type of guy. I like to like take life apart and break it into little separate pieces, smack down to the different elements. And, you know, some would call that a, a compensated observationalist. So I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Like when you think about people, when I think about my friends, like I've got lots of groups, you know, I got my, my East coast friends, which was my, you know, my first life. And I would say my East coast friends, are my most real friends. They're going to call me out on my shit, by the way, the most. And it's pure and wherever, you know, you try to make time for them, but it's hard to do. But then I've got my neighborhood friends and my neighborhood friends, they're not going to call me out like my East Coast crew. And, and we'll do fire pits and we'll do barbecues. But like a lot of our neighborhood friends, it's more like do the kids actually like each other. And if the kids like each other, guess what? You're you friends. Get along. We're getting along, right? <laughs> And, and so, look, that's just an example, right? And, and rarely, by the way, I've had all my groups of friends together in one place other than like maybe a wedding, right? That exercise of sort of deconstructing and breaking things apart and making sense, and that's what my guest is all about. She's She does make sense of it all. She's a, a master presenter. She's a, an author. She's a story maker a change maker. She's the chief, a chief strategy officer joined today by Patty Sanchez. How are you, Patty? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm so looking forward to this, Ryan. It's been too long. Every conversation with you is fun. So I'm sure this is going to be a wild ride. Well, what's cool is like we met in on stage, we shared a stage and, you know, it's like we were on a panel together, right? And so yeah. you got to be respectful of your other panelists, but you got something to say, you got to say it, right? So I just remember being like, oh, I like, I like what she's got to say and have been following your journey ever since, you know, instead of me doing it, why don't you sort of set the tone? Like, give me your background. What have you been doing? How long you've been there? Why don't you kind of give the intro? Yeah, for sure. Well, like you said, I'm head of strategy and it's at a place called Duarte Inc., which is a communication consulting and training company. I've been there about 11 and a half years and uh, in that role, I work with clients, advise them on how to take their communication up to another level, especially using storytelling. But a big part of my focus these days is building training that teaches people how to do it themselves because we're on a mission to transform how millions of people communicate actually. And it's hard to do that one person at a time, really need a platform, a way that we can scale up our help to people so we can reach a lot more. Uh, and it's it's rooted in what I've always done my whole life, which is talking, writing, uh, counseling in a lot of ways. And so it, it keeps me uh, interested. It keeps me, I'm going to say young, but I don't think that's actually true. It just keeps me alive. <laughs> Energized, as yeah. I like to say. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I, I think life is a bit like Monopoly. Like you don't pass go and the game 
doesn't continue till you do Pasco. But once you Pasco, you got a shot and you keep going around. And so I I agree that the whole concept of this is, well, how do you, you got something. Like it starts with, do we have something, right? And it, it does start with like, oh, wow, this story helps somebody. And then you get to the part where like, okay, this story or the process behind the story helps somebody. And then you, you do it again and you do it again. And you're like, is it really this? Is it really this process? And then you get to a position where you're like, okay, how do you scale it? And I feel similar with courage. Like I love the fact that I can like work with a courageous leader one day and then I can work with a leader that's trying to do courageous transformation another. And then I'm like, well, how do I scale it? How do I scale it? And why is that so important to scale it? Why, why is it so important for you to scale this thing? Well, it's impact. It, because ultimately, I believe that great communication changes people, it changes companies, it changes societies. And, and so I and we at Duarte want to get that skill set into the hands of more people. And, and I say get the skill set in their hands. I mean, we like to think we're, we know how to communicate, right? If you go to school at all, they teach you reading, writing, writing and arithmetic, you might get some public speaking in there, but it doesn't necessarily teach you how to really relate to other people, really connect to them, translate what you're saying so they can understand it. And uh, so that's a lot of what my work, my career has been about. And I think the more people understand how to do that, the better our world will be. It sounds, you know, like sugar and honey, but I think it's really important, especially now. Well, it's funny. When I think about storytelling, though, there is a, there is a persuasion element to it, right? It's not which is like the opposite of relatability, right? Like, how do I understand your world so I can relate to you? But like persuasion, I mean, I think that's what we kind of both do in some ways, does get a bad rap. Like if you look at the dictionary definition of persuasion, it's a cause to do something through reasoning or argument. Wait a minute, argument, right? But helping people make their case, doing so clearly and effectively and saving everyone time along the way is never a bad thing, right? Well, I don't think so, though. It depends on how you do it. And I've I've had a complicated relationship with the idea of persuasion my whole professional career. Because like you said, I uh, it needs to happen for businesses to achieve their goals, for companies to sell their products. You need to convince somebody to say, I want this. And I think advertising in particular has gotten a bad rap because we are seen as manipulators uh, who, who make people want things they don't actually need. And I believe that that you can understand what your audience really needs and map what you have to say, what you have to offer to that. And you're doing them a service if you do that. Uh, I don't I don't love that traditional definition of persuasion as if by force. The word I really like these days is influence because I want my audience to feel like they still have agency. You know, that that I'm not here just to manipulate you into doing what I want, but I'm here to help you see how you can get what you want. Uh, if we work together, if if you consider this perspective, it's going to help you be more successful. That, now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to like my idea or that they're going to be ultimately moved by what I have to say, but at least I give it a shot. And they have the option to say, I buy in or not. Well, there's an intentionality to it, right? And then yeah. what I know about your presentation style, you do a ton of keynotes. And 
what I like about it is it's like we're back to that deconstruction idea, right? Like it's it's part inspiration and it's part utility. You know, you, you're talking about helping your audience audiences dream big, but you don't leave them in the land of dreamland where it's like not attainable, right? There's a practicality to your presentations. I, I like that more than persuasion or manipulation. It's like dream big, here's the inspiration piece, and then bring in the practicality part. Am I getting this thing right? And can you give an example of like how this comes to life in a keynote? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, a, a way to think about it philosophically is that in every story, like the novels, movies that we see, there's a character called a hero, right? The hero is the person that the things happen to. But there's also a character usually that shows up is called a mentor. And the mentor is the person who helps the hero in that moment when you're really stuck. And the way that I think about it, the way that we think about it at Duarte is that the audience is the hero and you are their mentor, which changes your mindset. It makes you think, what can I give them right now that's going to help them get from where they are to where they need to go, which inspiration only gets you so far. Like, I think you were really basically trying to say, you know, get everybody all kind of like hopped up on hope, but then they still need to figure out what they're going to do about it. How do I achieve that? How do I get a step closer to the thing I want to attain? And so the speaker, the presenter needs to give them a, a starting point. And for me, a lot of times it's models. It's a structure, a way to think about the situation that they're in so that they can see it, they can better describe it. And if they can better describe it, they can bring people along and tips. Like the last book that I put out called Presenting Virtually is just full of tips. Lots of little tactical things you can do differently to engage your audience in this medium. And uh, and it was really important to me to have it not just be theory, uh, but to be very practical. Because I think you know, nobody has time for theory alone. We're all under pressure trying to get stuff done. Well, you know, there's so much in there. So for starters, you know, you talked about the power of mentors. And I, I don't know, I... I wish I would have declared mentors earlier. It wasn't that I didn't have them. It's like, oh, shoot, that person was like helping me. And I was so caught up in my own success. You know, this is back to East Coast life. Like, I don't think it was until way later that I'm like, oh, man, thank you. Like, yeah, I didn't even know. I got even I didn't realize it, that you were you were a mentor, which always makes people slightly uncomfortable when you're like, dun, 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 you've been declared a mentor. But you know, look, you've been with Nancy a long time. Would you call her your mentor? Absolutely. Yeah. Nancy Duarte, she's mentored to a lot of people because that she does, she's driven by this desire to share what she knows to what we say, uh, be a generous expert. And that's really what a mentor is. And she's done that for me too. I, in in my everyday work with her, but also just in my personal life, she's been uh, an encourager, which I think is something a good mentor does. They see the good in you and they shine a light on it. They draw attention to it. They help you understand what you're good at. Sometimes you can't always see that, uh, but they also challenge you. And she does that too. She gives me stretch goals. She gives me constructive feedback. And it's it's what helps me get better. I mean, I'm perfect and I never will be, but I'm growing because I have a mentor in my life. And the same was true in earlier in my life. Uh, as I look back on the things the, the childhood that I was able to claw my way out of, there's no way that I could have gotten to where I am today without the help of some mentors. And I think we all need to do the same for others. So Nancy and you together eight years ago, I believe, write the, your first book. And this is where I wish we had video because you could see the two books over your shoulder. And the first one was called Illuminate 
right? Ignite change through speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols. This is also a tell that I don't give my guests questions in advance because I'm going to ask you to deconstruct each one in a minute here. So it's coming just as a heads up. But what's cool is, again, what a surprise is a co-creation piece. You guys did this together. And then now presenting virtually, I don't see a second name on that book. I think it was just your baby. And as as you've learned and you went on in your own, it was an important for you to like, I want to I want to own my own book. I want to have a one book at least that I do. That's a hundred percent you. I, I, and again, I'm, we've never talked about this. So I'm yeah. curious, like how important was that for you? Not at all, actually. Uh, and it, probably to my detriment, I don't have a really big ego or a need to feed it. And a lot of my life, I felt like I, I am the person who enables other people, empowers other people. So I don't seek the spotlight like that. The reason that my name is the only name on that book is because Nancy wanted it to be that way because her goal is as part of scaling the business is to lift up other thought leaders and to uh, build their reputations and traditional publishing houses want a sure thing. They want uh, a bet that they don't have to take a risk on. And so when, when we were approached to publish a book about presenting virtually uh, the traditional publisher said, great idea. Nancy needs to be on it. Patty, you can co-author, you know, we'll put you in smaller type below her name. And Nancy said, no, I need to pivot to the strategy. I need to lift up other thought leaders. Patty's going to be the one. And so this is actually Dorothy's imprint. Uh, we went with a hybrid publisher so that we could put out books with other people's names on them. And there's another one coming out, not with my name, but with two other people that I hired into the organization who were brilliant. But it would be really hard for them to get a publishing deal because nobody knows who they are. I love that. And yeah, it's the opposite of courage. It really is. It's for, for my book, same thing. Like the, it, it took me really like a, a third of the time to like do the research and the homework, probably another third to write it. And then a third to understand this universe called publishing. And okay, like I understand it from their perspective. You know, I understand that they're trying to minimize their risk, yeah. right? Here's the courage guy saying that, but I, I love um, Nancy's stance and your stance on this book. And I love you made the choice to go hybrid. Um, let's go back to this deconstructing commentary. And the the first book, there's a five-part process in the book. Yep. That is laid out. Um, you know, there, there lies the deconstruction. Why don't you sort of set up, first of all, the thesis of the book? Again, it's called Illuminate. Igniting change through speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols. Can you sort of high level and then let's get into each of the five steps? Yeah. Well, backing up to where it came from, which I think will help set up the thesis, is when I joined Duarte in 2011, Nancy had just published Resonate and her TED Talk had just gone live. And that was um, hitting a, a lot of people in like the, the happy place. They were getting really excited about this new way of applying storytelling principles to business communication. And so she asked me to start up a team of writers to get ready for all this inbound interest in speech writing and storytelling. And what started to happen in addition to that was we had some leaders of big organizations come in to uh, us and say, I have a big idea and it's so big, I need to create a movement around it. Not just a presentation. I know it's going to take more than one really great talk or just a roadshow, but I, I need to understand how I can communicate in a way that's going to get lots and lots of people excited about this concept and to pick it up and help carry it forward with me, which is change. It's change management. 
And so the premise for the book was how do you use storytelling to mobilize people to change, to affect change on a large scale? And uh, we did research for about three, four years into movements of all kinds in business and society, big transformation and turnaround efforts in corporations, but also social change movements to see what the pattern was in that. Where does story play a role? And what we discovered is that story is actually the underlying structure of change. You can understand the change journey if you understand story, because all stories have a three-act structure, a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have a person who's trying to do something, they encounter obstacles, and ultimately, hopefully, they succeed in overcoming. And what we discovered as we looked at all these movements was that leaders took their people on that same journey. And the five-act structure that we unpacked in the book is, is just a little bit more detail in that three-act structure. But basically, the first act of your change journey kicks in a gear when you, as a leader or a change maker, change agent, have a vision. You say, I want to achieve this. And you communicate to other people, which we call it your dream, basically. Just like Martin Luther King had a dream, you've got to declare, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to take you and why it's going to be good for you. And as soon as you communicate that dream or that vision, then people have a choice about whether they're going to help you or not. And that's one of the things I think leaders miss a lot. They think I just need to communicate it really well and I persuade magically and everything just starts to happen. But change isn't like that. And, you know, people have choices, they resist, they might drag their feet. There's this whole concept of quiet quitting right now where people will show up for the job, but they do the minimum to keep it. That's what can happen if you don't communicate so well that people say, I see what you're saying and I, and I want it because you've communicated to me why it's good for me too. So that's the beginning of the change journey, first two acts. Then the middle. So that's the, is, so, so part one is the dream. Yeah. It's the dream and the leap. Okay. And the leap. So you communicate the dream, but you have to, you have to say it in such a way that people want to leap in with you because nothing will happen if they don't make the choice to help. Do you remember that YouTube then, clip of the dancing party? At the, it's like a famous clip, right? Yes. Yeah, it was like Bumbershoot and Festival or something <laughs> like that, right, in the Northwest. It wasn't the first dancer. It was the second dancer. It was like, right. you got to get to the set. Like, this is the leap part, right? So That's you've got exactly the dream right. and the leap. you got to get people to dance with you because you're not going to be able to put on a whole show by yourself. Uh, so dream and leap. Then the middle of the change journey is the next two acts. And they're called fight and climb. That's basically in, in any story where people uh, encounter obstacles and they have to go to battle over them and, uh, and try really hard to make some wins happen. And, uh, and communication is really critical, too, to acknowledge for people who are right there in the foxhole what that is like. Uh, you know, how hard it is, what kind of barriers that they're running up against. And you as a leader have to acknowledge those and don't put on the rose colored glasses, you know, because people are going to say that's BS. You know, I, I get your vision. It's all glorious and everything, but it's actually really hard. And actually we're, we're having some trouble achieving it. And so you need to come alongside them and communicate in a way that gives them clarity, but also encouragement, and resources and tools to help them get through those battles and the better you do that, then the more likely they're going to be able to achieve some small wins, which is climbing, it's climbing closer to your goal. And then the third act we call arrive, which is, you know, following that metaphor of traveling through the wilderness and trying to get somewhere physical, eventually you get to your destination. 
And a lot of times people will say to me, well, does that ever really happen in change management? And in reality, it's usually uh, kind of a mixed result. You know, you achieve some of your goals, you fall short of some of them. But the important thing is you have to acknowledge the end of the cycle for people that you're bringing along. You need to say, all right, so that that phase was all about trying to achieve X. Here's what we did make happen. Here's where we're still falling short. And this is what we're going to do next, which is the next journey that we're going on. And it's really important to give people that closure by celebrating what actually happened uh, and, and acknowledging what you failed at before you try and, you know, increase the goal or move the the goal line further down the field for them so that they can feel some sense of success and have basically feel their feelings before you keep pushing them forward. I love this sort of step-by-step and there's a, again, we're back to dreaming big with practicality, which is what you're so good at. But I don't know if this is like, as I'm thinking about what I'm about to say here, I'm an optimist, you know, so And what I'm going to say is not optimistic. And so I'll I'll be the first to throw that out there. But like, I always found, so again, the five steps, there's the dream, which is one, the leap, which is two, there's the fight, which is three, there's the climb, which is four. And then there's sort of the the reflection or the arrival moment, which is five. So, you know, sort of a combination there, closure on the, on that first story. Uh, I always found that the dream and the leap does lead to the fight. But if if the dream is not as clear as it could be, act the step four is the plight. It's like the fight you you lose on the fight, and then the plight takes over. But when the dream is clear, and people have leaped and followed, and you, there's all these little fights inside the fight, yeah. And as long as we stay true to the dream and it's clear enough, that's when the climb really happens. And when it's not clear or it's confusing and sometimes you don't realize it till you get into the third phase. The fight flips to the plight and people start jumping off and it's not, it, it could have been stronger, I guess is what I'm saying. How, how often are you, when you're in there, are you like, wait a minute, we need to go back to the dream. Oh yeah. Maybe we lost, maybe we lost sight of what the dream was. It's okay to pivot, right? but let's make sure the dream is big enough that when we get into the fight, the climb is possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some you always need to revisit the dream. I mean, at least from a communication standpoint, right? We remind people this is what we set out to do. This is how the progress we're making toward it. You know, with those status updates. And if, like you said, it turns out to be the wrong dream or unachievable dream, then you do have to be open, right? Willing to pivot and recommunicate. Now, change the goals. I mean, we're we a lot of us are experiencing that right now because the economic situation uncertainty. Uh, you know, it's unlikely that a lot of organizations are going to hit their goals this year in the way that they originally imagined. So you got to reset. But, but it's not just about that, you know, financial goal that you're trying to achieve that that dream usually is bigger, right? It's about an outcome you're trying to create. What is the mission you're on as an organization? And so uh, you may change your strategy for how you're going to achieve that mission. And in the fight and climb, you might need to shift that and recommunicate it. But if you're if your dream is really transformational, you can't give up on that. You know, you, you might have to pivot and recommunicate that new strategy, but you got to keep people motivated, committed for the long haul. And that is communication. Yeah, I noticed you didn't call your book Ignite Bad Change through speeches 
stories, ceremonies, and was that? There's a, was, plenty of that, right? Was that part of the uh, the the option list there? <laughs> you know, my last company was called Idea I D E A, and I always used to say, "Look, there's good ideas and there's bad ideas, you know, and bad ideas are going to send you in the wrong direction, so you got to be real careful." And same thing, there's there's good change and there's bad change, and obviously the whole goal here is to make the world better, right? With that change. I'm curious, this is outside of podcast land, but like, can you give me an example, high level, where you think the world has changed for the better, for the good, and then maybe one place, and you can choose which order you want to go on this, maybe one place where like the world is changing for the worse. Like, let's just have a courageous and honest conversation. And I'm happy to share what I think too, but I'd, I'd love to hear like, where do you think the world's getting better, changed for the better, and sadly, maybe where it's changing for the worse. I think I believe in progress and I, and probably because I'm an optimist too. If you take the long view, I think that humans are evolving to be better as a species. Now you could probably point to a lot of evidence that says that isn't the case, but uh, you know, the little bit of history I read says the quality of life, the longevity of life we have today is better than it was 200 years ago, 500 years ago. If you think in, you know, the long game, like I said, over the centuries, humans are getting better. That's the advances that we're bringing into our lives, I think, are on the whole uh, good for us. Technology, in my opinion, is on the whole good for us. You know, I live in Silicon Valley, so I am in a bubble. Uh, but I, I know that I'm more efficient and productive in my work than I used to be before I had all the software that I could use, before I had a computer in my pocket. You know, um, the, the problem is I choose to overfill myself now <laughs> because I didn't just allow myself to enjoy that free time. Neither did my companies that I work for, right? We just try to pack more things in. But so that's good. I think technology is helping us get work smarter, um, even if we choose to let it make us work harder too. And uh, what is not so good is the dark side of technology. I mean, we could talk a lot about social media and how it brings out the worst tendencies in human beings. To have that megaphone coupled with uh, a mask that lets you get away with saying lots of horrible things to other people that then get repeated and repeated and repeated. Uh, that's a pretty crappy situation, I think. Um, yeah, it makes me sad. Interesting that it's pretty much the same thing. This like tech, right? That's bringing a better world. It's kind of the with great power, there's great responsibility. I believe. Right. So I tell you what, I got a nine year old and a seven year old. And my biggest changing for the worst worry is it's almost never been harder to think for yourself. Right. Because like everything is instant gratification. There is no delayed gratification. Look, uh, hey, Siri, hey, Alexa, hey, my phone's going bonkers right now as I say this, right? Like, uh, I put in someone's address in my car. I might as well be Ron Burgundy reading a teleprompter. Like, <laughs> I don't even know how to get there without it. And so I worry a little bit about um, we become instant gratification machines. But really, like, how do I help you see what you're reading isn't necessarily a thousand percent the truth, but it may be. It's like, give you what you need to think for yourself. Uh, that's the thing that worries me the most. On the flip, on the positive, I think access all the way, right? Like access breeds diversity. Diversity makes everything better. 
diversity makes better conversations. Diversity makes better food. Like, yeah. I, like there's so much the access. And and again, I just said, by the way, all I did was say the exact same thing that you said, right? It's like technology is what's kind of getting in the way maybe of us not thinking for ourselves, but technology is creating access to great thinkers, to, to new, right? Absolutely. And on a broad level, when I was writing Presenting Virtually, one of the things uh, that I got started to get really excited about was the accessibility uh, and inclusion that the medium enables, right? You think about being a speaker, for instance, I would travel to a physical event and the, whoever was in front of me in that room was whoever could afford to be there, whose employer could afford to be uh, put them there, who who uh, were just seen as kind of the in crowd, you know, of that community. And now when I present, especially to, you know, online events, the audiences for those events are much bigger. They're broadly distributed across the country, across the world. And and that same technology is available at a pretty affordable price to anyone who has an idea and wants to be heard. Uh, you know, YouTubers are a great example of that. And that feeds diversity of thought, diversity of opportunity, diversity of impact. So I want to jump into presenting virtually yeah. a little bit. And I mean, we kind of just did. You just sort of started. Um, look, I take a lot of pride in still being a practitioner. Like I like rolling up my sleeves. And I know we're on the same page here. Like, I actually want to help people still figure out their shit. But there's a lot of speakers that that's just what they do. They're just, they speak. I'm not sold totally that they know what it's like behind the curtain at companies. So let me keep this PC so I don't get myself in trouble. Yeah. I don't love the term motivational speaker, but I get it. And, I, and I've been called a motivational speaker. But when... When you're now in the virtual world and someone allows you into their home, I feel like my tone over the last few years has flipped where I'm now a conversational speaker, right? You're going to let me in. Like, I'm in your house. Like, the cat's behind you. It's a conversation. Is that, is there anything like that that you saw when making your book? For sure. Well, it starts with the technology, too. I mean, yes, uh, there's an opportunity to create more of an intimate relationship with your audience because they're watching you at home and you're recording or broadcasting from home, then it levels that playing field a little bit more. They see you as the, a human who's not too different from them instead of this, you know, spotlighted magician on a stage. And the other thing that changes that dynamic is the uh, ways that we can interact with each other on these platforms. So uh, people can hit the reaction emoji. They can comment in the chat while you're talking. Uh, you can pose a question to them. You can send them in a discussion groups. And that means that people expect to engage in a, in, a, in a dialogue with you. I think gone are the days of a monologue. And uh, we did some research. We did a study to see what people prefer in virtual presentations. And they want them to be short, shorter than they used to be. Uh, if If you're just given a keynote, a motivational talk where you don't interact with anybody, people want that to be like 20 minutes or less. It's the TED Talk. If you're going to go longer than that, you need to invite them into the conversation. And that's that's not your traditional you know, presenter, the way that a lot of people think about uh, standing and delivering. It's really more of a conversation. Give me like the one aha surprise moment. I don't, I'm not saying give away the book, but like in the deconstructing research part of creating, presenting virtually, 
Was there something that was like, oh, my Lord, I so got that wrong. Thank God I went and talked to X amount of people. Well, the two things, really. I know you wanted one, but anyway, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, well, bring it. One is the the just attention economy, you know, that people are more and more distracted. And so you really have to change everything about the way you present so that you can keep them interested and lure them back in. So that means more variety in what you show, more small chunks of content and then an interaction and a chunk of content interaction. Uh, just, just less is more. Uh, and I think that's really important and I was doing that wrong. Uh, the other is I got really excited about thinking about this medium as not an extension of a presentation, but as a new medium in and of itself. And that's uh, that's more about, like I said, where technology can take us, where uh, you can have your slides behind you, like a weatherman or weather person, uh, much more easily now than you used to be able to do. And you can start to get basically TV quality uh, imagery in front of any audience. And that's cool. And I did go back and look at old television shows and old radio shows and and try to understand what of that can you carry forward into this age and a lot of it still holds true. Uh, delivery matters. How you use your voice, how you use your face, how you use your body to keep them interested in you, even just within that little square. And also how you think about the scene that you're showing them. Uh, everything's intentional in, in a TV show, in a movie, what you wear, what is in the environment behind you. All of that matters. And the same is true for virtual communication because that little square just draws more attention to whatever's on the wall or the floor, you know? So you have to be a little more deliberate about how you curate that scene for people, which I think is kind of fun. Well, I definitely agree that it's harder to stand out, mm -hmm. right? And and maybe that's a mistake that some presenters give is like, no, don't you, just because you're confined to a square, doesn't mean that that's it or that you should phone it in, right? I love right. how intent, intentional you've made this. Um, I also felt like, for me, a biggie's always pacing, where to put the space, yeah. right? Like, create some space so people will, okay, this must be a part where, like, I'm supposed to be thinking. <laughs> oh, know? yeah. Well, that's a part of dynamism. You know, the dynamics of sound aren't, aren't just about making a sound, but not making a sound. Those times when you pause, when you get quiet, that that creates a different kind of energy too and also invites people in. Is there, um, give me like one common thread that you took from the first book, the learnings from the first book mm. that super apply, that just totally apply in the second book. Is there one takeaway that you can share? Yeah, it's empathy. It's core to how I think and operate as a communicator, but it's also core to both books because I think it's what makes the difference between effective communication and non-effective communication. And I guess to be obvious, empathy for your audience. It's not about you. It's about them. It's about what they need to hear, about what they need to feel, and how you can give it to them. I mean, yeah, it's everything, right? It's just jumping into their shoes and like, is this going to land? Right. Uh, there's a real big difference between sharing knowledge and transferring knowledge. Yes, I love that. Right. And so right. I think our job is to, if I just shared it and it bounces off my computer screen, 
and I don't get that part, that's a whole nother problem, frankly. I probably am not a very good presenter. Yeah. Uh, so if you weren't doing this and you had to, you had to do something else, what would, what do you think you'd end up doing or what would you want to do? I've thought about it a few times over the years and it always ends up being pretty similar, actually. <laughs> Barista? Yeah, no, you only on like my worst day, I think <laughs> I would much rather pour coffee than do this. I know that crosses my mind or mixed drinks, you know, which is probably more my style. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I love I love great conversation. I love uh, I love coaching and helping people through tough situations. And in a lot of ways, that's what I do with my communication, but also as a leader or manager, whatever you want to call me. Uh, I still really enjoy that. Um, I do have a slight little fantasy that I'm going to have uh, several acres uh, in the country, not too far from an airport that people can easily get to that will involve a retreat center with lots of nice little casitas and a big ass fire pit where we can sit and tell stories. And I might also have possibly a few hundred dogs that I have to rescue. We'll see. Um, but, you know, I, 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 it's not in the plans at the moment, but that would be my dream, just to create that space for people to share their stories, get to know each other, and leave nourished. Well, I, lo I love that. And it's, you know, it's certainly something, just so you know, I'm thinking about too. It's like, can I create a Courage Academy? Can I create a space, take this Courage Boot Camp idea and create opportunities for people to really better understand each other. And so we're thinking the same thoughts, which is cool. Uh, I'm always also of the stated and created mentality. So like once it's out there and it's stated, you know, the good news is the bad news right now. The hundred dogs thing. I, I'm a dog <laughs> lover. I'm not, are they running around on this farm or wherever they are? You have me there, but I like, I love where your head's at on like, creating real community and creating like real conversations for people to like help each other and connect and collide. Yeah. Just All right. Like well, tell me when yours is ready. I'll tell you when mine's ready down here. Uh, and like <laughs> what a surprise. This is a super fast conversation. I, I, I love the way that you're going about your business. Like when you, when you think about your day to day, I don't mean today, but like in general, how much of your time now is like helping clients that are on the roster versus people on the team versus thinking about new concepts versus give me like the pie chart percentage breakdown of how your time gets broken out at work. Today uh, is probably about five or 10% working directly with clients because uh, I've pivoted over to the training side of the business away from consulting. Uh, and I think about them in aggregate now. I think about them in segments and I and I think about how I can help this group of people or that group of people rather than sitting one one on one with the leader working on their talk. Um, and uh, that need, leads to a big hunk of the pie for me, which is dreaming up our next new product working on on demand video subscription based product that is really exciting and fun that will come out next year. That's probably 50 percent of my time. And the rest is made up with. One-on-ones, getting people unstuck, um, helping them move through their feelings or their frustrations about these big goals that they have that I keep putting on them. Uh, and that's rewarding in its own way. Last question of the day. You ready? Sure. So if you think about where you're afraid, right? This is a show about courage. So let's go there. Like, is there 
One you can share. I guess it's a two-parter. Two last two of the day. Is there a, something that you're afraid of professionally that you can share? And then maybe there's a fear personally that you can share. And are they what? Would, what are those for you? Uh, well, I mentioned making a new product. Uh, so professionally, the big fear is that I'm wrong about what people actually want uh, from us and are willing to pay for. So. Uh, you know, how I can manage that fear is doing testing, doing research and testing, which gives me some degree of comfort and confidence, but it's not going to take away all the risk. And so it could entirely be uh, that when I launch it, it's it's not a terrible failure, but it's not a huge success. It might be somewhere in the middle, and then I'll have to evaluate, iterate, and try again. That's possible. I'm 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 aiming for success, wild success, but I'm preparing myself for something less than that. Uh, and and on the personal side, I mean, it's everything that comes along with that. It's looking stupid, it's guessing wrong, uh, it's not knowing, and and I encounter that all the time. But it's one of the reasons why I really uh, resonate with you and what you talked about when we first met at that conference a few years ago. Which is, so what? That's you're still going to feel that fear, but you got to move through it with courage. Well, I so appreciate your. Honesty, um, a lot of us encounter it. Most of us don't talk about it. Reputation, all the reasons that we know. So I appreciate you you bringing it up and I appreciate you going for it. And uh, you have a, a fan and an ally and a friend in San Diego. So however I can help, you want me to be part of the testing phase, I'm happy to, to do what I can. Uh, keep going, keep rolling. Congratulations. I can't wait for book number three. That's terrible. That's too much pressure. Can't wait to see, <laughs> see what you do next, Patty. And uh, stay courageous. You too. Thanks, Ryan.